Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Over the past four decades, the many conflicts between Syria and Egypt were technically family squabbles. And I don't just mean that in the sense that they were all Macedonians. As I mentioned a few episodes back, Antiochus the Great had married his daughter Cleopatra Syra to Ptolemy V in 193, mainly to soothe any bad feelings after he'd conquered Coel Syria. Syra had even ruled Egypt for a few years after her husband's death, and her eldest son, the current Egyptian king Ptolemy VI, was known as Philometor, the lover of his mother, due to her powerful influence on his early life. Antiochus the Great also had two sons, Seleucus IV and Antiochus IV, who'd fathered sons of their own. So, as a result, Ptolemy VI, Ptolemy Physcon, and the Syrian king Demetrius I were all the grandsons of Antiochus the Great, as was the would-be usurper Alexander Ballas. Just to mention one more connection, Antiochus the Great had married off a second daughter, named Antiochus with an I, to the Cappadocian king Ariarthes IV. The couple's daughter, Stratonice, was later married to King Eumenes II of Pergamon. In fact, when Eumenes died in 154, Stratonice married his brother, King Atalos II, which meant the current queen of Pergamon was another of Antiochus's grandkids. Given these relationships, Operation Alexander really broke down like this. The husband of Antiochus's granddaughter, Atalos II, supported by Antiochus's grandson, Ptolemy VI, was trying to overthrow Antiochus's grandson, Demetrius, and replace him with Antiochus's grandson, Alexander Ballas. Which kind of reinforces the adage that all politics are personal. And this is probably a good time to mention that you guys should really follow The Ancient World on Facebook. 
where I post family trees, maps, and other goodies that help keep this stuff straight. The most critical factor in the operation was the support of Ptolemy VI. The Egyptian king had come a long, long way from his days as Antiochus IV's puppet. For one thing, his army and navy were sufficiently strong to keep Fizcon away from Cyprus. He also apparently felt secure enough to risk Rome's displeasure, and even their diplomatic isolation. Not that Rome couldn't conquer Egypt or Syria, if they really put their mind to it, but given their M.O. of the period, they'd probably install some other client king who'd be just as unreliable. No, might as well wait another 120 years until Mark Antony forced the issue. In addition to wealth and military power, the Ptolemies brought a unique relationship. Their long-standing governing ties to Coel Syria. For nearly a century, Coel Syria had been Egyptian territory, and had only been wrestled away around 50 years earlier. Not to mention the regional capital, the coastal city of Ptolemais, would make an ideal base for attacking Syria's underbelly. So in 152, when Ptolemy gave the plan his blessing, all the pieces locked into place. Meanwhile, the 33-year-old King Demetrius had been ruling Syria for about a decade. So what did he manage to accomplish? Well, we covered his initial conflicts with Media and Judea, the failed conspiracy to overthrow Ariarathes, and the failed conspiracy to steal Cyprus away from Ptolemy. We also mentioned that he'd married his own sister, Laodice, and by now the marriage had produced three sons, named Antigonus, Demetrius, and Antiochus. We noted that growing threats in Anatolia kept Demetrius from indulging his wish of restoring Seleucid control of peripheral territories. So, thus threatened and thus constrained, Demetrius apparently threw up his hands and resumed the same partying lifestyle he'd enjoyed as a Roman hostage. According to Polybius, the Syrian king became so much addicted to drunkenness that he spent the greater part of the day in drinking. And these were the words of a former friend, so you know they had to sting. Given the situation, it's pretty easy to picture a nervous aide cautiously waking a very hungover Demetrius to the news that Alexander Ballas had landed in Syria. As expected, his landing site was Ptolemais, Bronze Age Akko, Crusader Acre, and modern Acre Israel. I wish I could give you a compelling visual, but the city had so many later occupants Romans, Arabs, Crusaders, Mamluks, Ottomans, Palestinians, Israelis, etc. that not much remains from the Hellenistic era. The city fell to Alexander with little or no resistance. According to historian John D. Granger, Alexander's large mercenary army, the warships that brought them to Ptolemais, and the rapid surrender of the city itself were all likely engineered by Ptolemy VI, with financial aid from Pergamon and Cappadocia. 
In fact, it's kind of implied that once Ptolemy VI came on board, he basically took charge of the whole affair. And there's zero further mention of the plan's architect, Heracleides. Alexander's forces were sufficiently large that Demetrius hesitated to launch an attack, at least until he'd gathered enough troops to ensure a decisive victory. The problem, as Demetrius soon learned, was that this was much easier said than done. So what basically happened is that both sides hunkered down in their respective capitals, Antioch and Ptolemais, and tried to gather political support. And it didn't take long for things to get pretty awkward. First Maccabees reports that Demetrius contacted Jonathan Maccabee, the brother of Judah, whom his army had killed, to try to win his support against Alexander Ballas. The main inducement was authorizing Jonathan to reconstitute the Jewish army, which had then support Demetrius as an auxiliary force. It had also allowed the Seleucid king to pull his garrisons back up north, while keeping Alexander Ballas surrounded by rearmed Jewish forces. Jonathan apparently accepted the offer, and, being so magnified, raised an army, reoccupied Jerusalem, and drove out all the Seleucid officials installed by Demetrius and Bacchides. Which, okay, maybe that part didn't go exactly as planned, but at least the Judeans were on his side. Until they got the second letter from Alexander Ballas. Being in the weaker position, Alexander was willing to offer more, including restoring the position of Jewish high priest and offering Jonathan the role. Alexander even sent along a purple robe to help him look the part. Realizing he'd been outflanked, Demetrius rushed to sweeten the pot, offering to give the Jews possession of Jerusalem, compensate them for their military service, free them from paying royal tribute, restore their feasts, Sabbaths, and holy days, and grant them a veritable laundry list of other rewards and inducements. Demetrius also willed that their overseers and governors be of themselves, and that they live after their own laws. And, as a fun little bonus, he gave them the city of Ptolemais as a free gift with the understanding that, in order to claim it, they'd first need to kill Alexander. While all this sounds extremely generous, maybe even too good to be true, Demetrius just couldn't manage to seal the deal. Whether it came down to lack of trust or bitterness over his brother's death, Jonathan gave his support to Alexander Ballas. So, why did Demetrius, the completely legitimate king of Syria, have such a tough time gaining Seleucid support? Well, mainly because his once-promising reign had degenerated into failure and stagnation. And even his hold on northern Syria wasn't entirely secure. Many of the current Syrian officials had originally been installed by Antiochus IV, so it's safe to say their loyalty remained conditional. 
To be brutally honest, neither contender made a compelling case for the Syrian throne. Which is why the military stalemate and political jockeying dragged on for nearly two years. But finally, in 150 BC, Alexander made his move. Granger uses the minting of coins and fragmentary records to reconstruct the chronology. In June 150, Alexander apparently landed forces at Seleucia Pieria, only 20 miles from Antioch. If you recall, the Ptolemies had held the city for a couple decades in the late 3rd century BC, and Ptolemy VI may have cultivated contacts he could bribe to surrender the city. Demetrius could hardly ignore this major threat right on his doorstep, so he summoned the forces he had available and led them out of Antioch. After two long years of hemming and hawing, the two sides finally clashed. And they quickly learned that their caution had been warranted, because in terms of numbers and quality of troops, they were pretty evenly matched. Except... Demetrius' army included 25 war elephants. So either Lysias hadn't killed them all, or these had been acquired more recently. Whichever the case, Demetrius sent them thundering forward to smash Alexander's ranks, and his terrified soldiers fled to Seleucia Pieria. Inside the walls of his coastal stronghold, Alexander knew he was facing defeat unless he could counter the threat. But the invasion force he'd brought to Syria apparently had no elephants. So he was forced to improvise. In the first episode, we talked about the Syrian cities founded by Seleucus I. They included Antioch and Seleucia Pieria, where the rival armies currently sat, along with Laodicea and Apamea. While Laodicea was a major port, Apamea was a military base, one also used as a stable for horses and elephants. In Seleucus's time, it had held 500 elephants, those obtained from Chandragupta Maurya, along with 30,000 mares and 300 stallions. And while those heady days were far in the past, it was still a base and it still held elephants. It was also around a hundred miles from Seleucia Pieria. Granger suggests that Alexander Ballas sent a body of soldiers on a very critical mission, to either raid the possibly depleted garrison or bribe its officers to get what he needed. Either way, the plan apparently worked, because within a week of his initial defeat, Alexander launched a counterattack this time with some war elephants of his own. Demetrius's advantage was completely neutralized, and the two sides resorted to infantry combat, at which point it was really anyone's game. But Granger notes that as the battle raged, Demetrius became separated from his own forces, and he was surrounded by the enemy and killed, still fighting. On the death of Demetrius, the usurper faction regained control of the Seleucid Empire, with the help of Rome, Pergamon, Cappadocia, and, above all, Ptolemaic Egypt. 
A few weeks later, in the city of Cyrene, the 14-year-old Princess Cleopatra Thea received some interesting news. Her father, King Ptolemy VI, had decided it was time for her to get married. To her uncle Fizcon, the guy she'd been engaged to and living with for the past four years? Oh, yeah, no. Cleopatra Thea was instead to be married to the 17-year-old Alexander Ballas. We have no idea how she took the news, how she related to her father or her mother or to her uncle-slash-fiancé. Or, for that matter, how 32-year-old Ptolemy Fizcon felt about having his prospective bride yanked away and handed to a Syrian usurper. The only thing we know for sure is that the royal nuptials were due to be celebrated in grand Ptolemaic style. According to 1st Maccabees, Ptolemy went out of Egypt with his daughter Cleopatra, and they came to Ptolemaeus in the hundred threescore and second year. And just to mention it, the calendar used by the Seleucids, and also by the Judeans, put year zero at 312 BC, the year that Seleucus I retook Babylon at the beginning of our first episode. So the Seleucid year 162 equates to 150 BC. To continue, King Alexander meeting him, Ptolemy gave unto him his daughter Cleopatra and celebrated her marriage at Ptolemaeus with great glory, as the manner of kings is. Which is how Cleopatra Thea was formally installed as Queen Cleopatra I of Syria. There are even coins commemorating the marriage, with Cleopatra Thea prominent in the foreground and Alexander Ballas in the rear. The reason for this and for the rapid-fire wedding in general, was to grant Alexander some sort of legitimacy. Since he was both an illegitimate son of Antiochus IV and, of course, a usurper. But Granger also points out that the only comparable previous marriage between the two royal houses was that of Ptolemy II's daughter Berenice to Antiochus II, and had ended in her murder a Seleucid civil war, and a Ptolemaic invasion. So, let's all send our best wishes out to the happy young couple. The irony for King Ptolemy VI had to be pretty rich indeed. As a teenager, he'd been installed as a puppet ruler by the Syrian king Antiochus IV. And now, Two decades later, he'd installed Antiochus IV's teenage son as his own puppet king in Syria. Sorry, I mean as a noble and trusted ally. Or at least kinda trusted. Ptolemy apparently made it clear from the start that he'd strongly prefer that Alexander govern Syria from Ptolemaeus, where the Egyptian king had solid contacts and could return in force if needed, if things ever started to go south. It's safe to assume that a new palace was built to house the royal family in court, and Ptolemy appointed trusted officials to act as the new king's advisors. In general, the transition from Demetrius to Alexander looked to be pretty seamless, which again goes to show how the once unthinkable can rapidly become the new norm.
Seleucid officials appointed by Antiochus IV had little problem supporting his son, and none appointed by Demetrius rose up in revolt. It's safe to assume that, outside the happy little bubble of Ptolemaeus, the Egyptian influence may have rankled the more diehard Seleucid loyalists. But for the moment, they seemed to be biding their time and seeing how things played out. The new couple could feel somewhat secure that the immediate threats had been addressed. Even before their celebrity wedding, Alexander would have let Thea know that the most prominent members of the old regime, Demetrius's sister-wife Laodice and their firstborn son Antigonus, had already been put to death. But she'd also learned that Demetrius's two younger sons, Demetrius and Antiochus, had somehow managed to slip away and escape to Anatolia. Which, depending on where they ended up, could be a no-brainer or a very big deal. Two of Anatolia's major players, King Atalos II of Pergamon and King Ariarthes V of Cappadocia, had backed Alexander's bid for the throne. So, now that murdering Seleucid children was actually a thing, they could easily take care of the kids if they ever showed up making trouble. She also knew that two other kingdoms, Bithynia and Pontus, were currently occupied with succession disputes, but also had no particular motive to shelter Demetrius's children. If there was any lingering source of concern, it was the fact that coastal Anatolia still held a few pockets of autonomy. At about the same time that Alexander Ballas was fighting Demetrius, the new king Atalos II of Pergamon had made some moves of his own. Pergamon already had control of the southern coastal city of Perge, but Atalos wanted to create a new port along the coast to the west. So he founded the city of Atalia, now known as Antalya, Turkey. But apart from this narrow strip of Pergamene coast, things were a bit more open. Both Lycia and Caria, located in extreme southwestern Anatolia, were currently independent. After backing Antiochus the Great against Rome, both territories had been annexed to Rome's ally, Rhodes. But Polybius records them being freed around 167 BC. In the other direction, to the east of Perge, was the major port of Sede. It's a pretty idyllic spot, with a stunning temple of Apollo right on the beach. It's also one of those coastal cities the Ptolemies had held for a bit. But at the time of our story, it was independent as was much of the adjacent coast to the east as far as Cilicia. So, if Demetrius and Antiochus had found refuge somewhere in one of these coastal strips, they might just manage to survive, and also serve as a rallying point for legitimists plotting to reclaim the throne. For the moment, there wasn't much to be done. Send out agents, ask around, and hope to receive confirmed reports that the boys had been found and killed. Meanwhile, Thea and Alexander did their best to push the subject from their minds and try to govern their kingdom. 
But only a few months had passed before the couple started hearing disturbing rumors. That Demetrius, who was only nine, had recently landed in Crete. Once there, he'd contracted with a local commander to pull together an invasion force. Paid for with Seleucid gold the boys had smuggled from Syria. If the rumors were true, a legitimist army could show up on their doorstep pretty much any time in any place, basing themselves in some coastal city until they were ready to attack. It was a threat that Alexander took very seriously, since it was pretty much the exact same approach he'd used to take the throne. And it was fear of Demetrius, along with Ptolemy's wish to maintain constant contact, that kept the couple pinned down in Ptolemais. To exacerbate the problem, Granger suggests that, since he didn't know where the force might land, Alexander was compelled to heavily garrison all the major cities along the Syrian coast. Combined with the military losses on both sides during the two main battles with Demetrius I, the result was a Seleucid army that was severely overstretched. And, like fighting over bedsheets, making sure one side is adequately covered is very likely to leave your wife with an exposed foot and a sour disposition, which I guess I'll use as a horrible analogy for the Parthians. In 148 BC, three major events took place. For one, the now 16-year-old Queen Cleopatra Thea gave birth to her first child with the 19-year-old King Alexander Ballas. The boy was named, any guesses, it was Antiochus, and he was the new heir to the Seleucid throne. Also sometime during that year, a massive earthquake struck the region of Antioch. Not the most auspicious omen to accompany the new royal birth. The last major piece of news was also pretty ambiguous. Sometime in the summer of 148, Thea and Alexander learned that a major battle had just been fought in the eastern province of Media. The Seleucid governor of the upper satrapies, a man named Cleomenes, likely sent word of a great victory. The evidence for this is a large sculpture of a celebrating Heracles, with wine cup in hand, carved into the mountainside near Behistun, the site best known for the famous inscription of King Darius I. Cleomenes dedicated the sculpture to Heracles the Victorious, which certainly seems to imply a military victory. The name of his enemy isn't recorded, but Given the time, place, and context, it's likely to have been King Mithridates I of Parthia. So, on the one hand, the Parthians had invaded, but on the bright side, they'd been repulsed. Relieved by the news, Alexander may have even withdrawn additional forces from the eastern frontier to stiffen the coastal defenses. If he did, it'd prove a horribly costly mistake. Neither Thea nor Alexander could possibly know that Mithridates was just warming up, or that the next time he threatened the Seleucid Empire, he'd be very far from alone. <laughs> 